gospel is a very particular word or kind of speech in the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, the gospel is God's promise of a son who will crush the serpent's head, forgive the sins of his people, raise them from the dead, and give them everlasting life solely on the basis of his grace for the sake of Christ. If you're interested in the, the beginnings of the church, you know, I think looking at the creed is a great way of, of getting into church history and really seeing where the faith kind of came together. In the scripture, the way it presents discernment is actually the skill that you develop where you're able to identify goodness. And what was surprising to me is that is much the way we use the language of discernment outside of the church. The real difference, I would say, like what patriarchy teaches versus what we should believe, is that what they believe about the nature of men and women, that there is something fundamentally different about authority and submission between men and women. And that's not just like within particular relationships, but men and women in general. This is their nature. What are the duties required in the Ninth Commandment? The duties required in the Ninth Commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man. The Gospel never tells us something to do. The Gospel tells us about something that's been done. Hi, welcome to Theology Gals. This is Colleen Sharp, and my co-host is Rachel Miller. And... We're continuing kind of our series on talking about some different sorts of abuse. And a few weeks ago, I'm not sure, maybe it was a month ago now, we did an episode on spiritual abuse. And I've mentioned before that since doing this, in in fact, even since that episode, we get a lot of feedback and a lot of people messaging with their stories, whether they're still in them or out of them. And we thought it would be helpful to hear some of those stories, and that's what we're going to do today. And we have Ty and Craig French with us, Um, and thank you so much for being willing to talk to us and share your story. Maybe you could share a little bit about who you are and share about yourselves. Sure. We just looked at each other to say, who's going to go first? (laughs) (laughs) Probably be doing a lot of that. Yeah. Yeah, uh, well, we're Craig and Ty French. We've been married for 19 years, and we live in the Toledo, Ohio area, and we have eight children. And what else? Uh, We uh, homeschool. We've been in more or less reformed circles for more than the length of our marriage while we were dating as well. Mm-hmm. So, thank y'all for being willing to be on. I know it's uh, nerve-wracking to to talk about uh, very personal things, and I appreciate you taking the time. Um, would you tell us a little bit about uh, you, you mentioned you've been reformed, but about your faith and church background, how you got to where you are now? Yeah, um, uh, I grew up in the church. I grew up in a free Methodist denomination. And with a strong focus on entire entire sanctification, and uh, 
early in college, right after my freshman year, um, started reading scripture differently and eventually identified myself as being Calvinist and reformed. And that same year is when I met Ty and we hit it off pretty nicely. Um, and since then we've been part of some different churches, but they've been reformed, uh, in a reformed church in America church. Uh, from there, I did some youth ministry there. And then we, uh, went to a reformed Baptist church. And after we got married, we moved to Kalamazoo and, uh, while Ty was working on her master's degree, we were part of an Orthodox Presbyterian church. And from there, uh, we moved back home, my hometown of Toledo, where we joined a uh, Presbyterian church in America church. Mm-hmm. But Ty has a slightly different um, church background from growing up. Yeah, I, I grew up in a church. The churches, uh, we moved around a lot. We were in and out of all kinds of different denominations, uh, some more charismatic, some a little bit more traditional. Uh, we see, I ended up at college with Craig, which was a United Brethren college, which neither of us were United Brethren. <laughs> we were both there and as Craig was going through his uh, coming into Calvinism stage, he encouraged me to look at scripture differently. And we began to do that together. And I had struggled a lot over the course of my growing up with assurance of salvation, just because I had always been in the church and I was really encouraged right after we were married by listening to the White Horse Inn and hearing uh, one of the guys on White Horse Inn talk about a similar experience where he struggled to know that he had been saved because he never had, you know, a big conversion experience. And that really helped to ground me knowing that, that, that other people have experienced the same thing and that I can look at how God has been faithful and working in my life over the whole of my life. And that gave me a lot of encouragement and a time when I needed it. And since uh, leaving the church that we were at, that was spiritually abusive, we found a home in the Anglican church and we've had a lot of rest and healing there. So we're very thankful for that in our lives. Craig, I actually went to a uh, Bible college that was kind of associated with free, free Methodist type churches, a holiness Bible college. And that's where I ended up becoming Calvinistic. Um, so you know what it's like to be lonely on that campus. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, I really think that my professor's, maybe had a party after I left because I was such a pain and yeah, I was going in this different direction and uh, a lot of my classmates from, from college are now Nazarene and various versions of Methodist. There's a lot of 
smaller uh, kind of free Methodist type denominations that that they're in. So yeah, and now I'll, I'm still friends with a lot of my friends from college, but they think I've gone off the deep end. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> Huntington was a really interesting place to become reformed at um, because it was while we were there, that's when open theism became a big thing. And one of, and two of the main kind of proponents at that point were, were professors there. So it was kind of an interesting time to, to be there too. Yeah, it really was a crucible kind of time. Yeah. So great. I always love hearing the stories about the White Horse Inn being uh, helpful to people. I was one. Do you remember which one of the hosts it was that I was oh, trying to uh, think when you were talking about? <laughs> I'm trying to think. It was, I actually, I looked it up and I listened to the podcast again because Joshua Torrey had asked me to jot down some thoughts about assurance of salvation. So I went back and listened to it. It's from a 2002 podcast, November of that year. And well, it was a radio broadcast at the time. And I forget which of them it was. Yeah, some people don't know that White Horse. Well, I was wondering, I was wondering if it was Rod, because since his son is my brother-in-law. I've heard Rod talk a lot about, about that, but some people don't know that White Horse then started out as a radio program and it was on, on Christian yeah. radio. And I started listening in 1994 and I would get my tape deck out and record <laughs> them so that I could listen to them over and over. Old and um, yeah, that, that's we how listen on Sunday evening. Yep. Sun, Sunday nights. And uh, it was on 11, yep. I was living in Chicago, so it was on 11 at night and I used to stay up and, and listen, even though I'm kind of early to bed, I would, I just soaked in every episode because I found it right after I left college yeah. when well, my husband introduced me to it the night we met in 1994. So, uh, can you just share a kind of a little summary about your abusive church situation? Yeah, we started attending um, because we had some family there. And as Craig had mentioned, the college we were at was sort of the ground zero for the openness theology controversy. And this church in particular was very outspoken against it. And by the time that we moved to Toledo to begin attending there formally, I think about half the congregation assumed we were already members there because we had been visiting so frequently. Um, it was it was a very welcoming church. And pretty much as soon as we moved there, they started getting us plugged into things. It seemed like before we even showed up, we had all kinds of friendships and relationships going there. Um, and when we, when we moved there, I think it would be kind of safe to say that we felt very adrift. You know, we were young marrieds. We didn't really know 
what we wanted our marriage to look like. We weren't really sure what we wanted as far as a family. And we just had a lot of questions and we weren't sure. Well, we weren't really sure what we were doing. Yeah. Uh, Ty had gotten her master's degree and I had struggled professionally. And so we just kind of felt like Ty was saying adrift and wanting direction. Mm-hmm. And when we would visit this church, when we were in town, there was, um, you know, having been to different reformed churches, the, the feeling of this church was very different. There was a great, uh, confidence and things that were kind of declared and, um, and what seemed like a great vigor and faith and everybody seemed to know what what they were supposed to do. Um, people uh, who didn't know what they were supposed to do could f- figure out what they were supposed to do. You had leaders who are willing to, to lead you, to guide you. And so it felt, I think at that point in our lives, like a very reassuring thing mm-hmm. in a way of getting our, our house in order in a way that it wasn't in order before. So I think that that made us um, very susceptible. And and I would say that there were a lot of areas where being there opened our minds to thinking differently about things like hospitality and family size and homeschooling. And those are all things that have been really good. While we were there, we had our first five children and began homeschooling and Craig was able to discern more of the direction that he wanted to go in his career. And those were all really good things. But we began to notice over time that some of those good things were being taken too far to a point where uh, they were controlling, dictatorial, how would you describe it? Um, When they would give you guidance or direction, it very often wasn't um, rooted in their concern for you and wanting to see you prosper and do well. It was how you interfaced or related to the church. Um, And then there were times where you were being manipulated for the benefit of another member. I remember one meeting where the pastor called me, called me to have coffee. And I thought, well, this is great. I'm really excited to sit down with him. And I imagine this will be an opportunity for me to, probably grow in my ministry or something like that. Come to find out part of the reason he wanted to meet with me was that it was related to another member's business. And I had a prospect of working there. And this member who happened to be a part of that business did not want me there. So the whole, the whole point of that meeting was to, was to tell me that's not the direction that I'm supposed to go. Um, 
for the benefit of that that individual member as opposed to would this be a good move for Craig? Is this something that he really want really wants to do? Is Craig limiting himself? It had nothing to do with that. It only had to do with other people's interests as opposed to my own. Sounds like a lot of assumptions too about whether the church had a place to say and tell you what you should be doing or whether the church should be interfering with, you know, stepping in, in your life and this person, the other person's life that they were, yeah. you know, that was this the role that the church should be playing in the first place? Exactly. It would have been a much healthier thing had that member actually just gone to me. Right. Why, why does, why is there the need of a, an intermediary or someone who quote unquote has authority? Um, in the end, I actually wasn't going to take that position, but I was just wildly open to it because I wanted to be open to God's leading. Mm. So there's, there's not a lot of room for waiting on God. There isn't a lot of room for listening for him. Instead, each member is guided to listen to their pastor or their, their elder and follow their directive. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's really just a refocus of your attention from God onto mere men and their approval and their direction dictate whether or not you are having a, a, a deepening relationship with God. And as we, as we began having our eyes open to that dynamic of control and overreach, we began to see it in a lot of different areas uh, as far as you know, how you educate your children, especially with the young people who they dated or didn't date what jobs people would take, where they would move. Uh, I don't know how even you know, like how many children people would have just all kinds of odd overreach. And what had, I guess, initially seemed like a comforting thing of having somebody to come alongside you and tell you how to make your decisions. We realized that it was really very sinister <laughs> Yeah, I, yeah. Just to kind of piggyback off of that, the what I keep coming back to is there's a complete loss of agency. Mm -hmm. So it, you become less and less able to make decisions on your own because you're so unsure of how the leaders will perceive that or whether or not they'll agree with it. So some people would bring some of the. Um, most inappropriate things to the session for, for them to render a decision. Um, some people would bring uh, family decisions to them that had no bearing on uh, what sessions would ordinarily, you know, help you out with. This wasn't just a pastoral assist. Like, um, should we go to the mountain or the ocean decide. for vacation type family or should we should we adopt a child? And this family wanted to adopt a child, hmm. and there was no reason for them not to. But the the leadership said, "No, you need to bear your own children and not adopt." 
And then kind of piggybacking on that again, uh, what would happen is once you received that counsel or once you received that verdict, either from you know a leader or the session, if you chose to do something other than what you did or what they had told you to do, then it it was perceived as being rebellious. And there were people who would be put under church discipline for making a decision according to the dictates of their conscience that, that wasn't a sin issue at all. It's just that their conscience was leading them in a different way than what they had been told. And yet, because they had disobeyed whatever leader had given them input, they were told that they were being rebellious and put under discipline. And that, you know, especially at that point, you look at that and you think that's, that's really not an acceptable use of church offices. Um, You've already started to kind of address this, but um, what are some of the tactics um, we've talked in some of our other episodes about some of the abusive tactics that are used in, in various situations, but what are some that you've experienced? Uh, I'm thinking along the lines of you've mentioned control, but uh, gaslighting, manipulation, threats, just in general, what are some of the things that were part of your experience? One of the things that we were both part of was that um, things like Bible studies or small groups where there was time for uh, sharing and prayer associated with that the leaders who were part of that were expected to give a report to the pastors or the elders about what the requests of other people were. And so there was an expectation that those requests were not private, but could be used to bring somebody under a form of discipline. Yeah, we were, we've, hosted um, small groups in the past and um, I would receive a weekly phone call from the associate pastor. And that phone call was um, primarily geared towards him finding out what people had, had prayed about or brought up in the small group. And I remember at times being very uncomfortable with it, but I, I, shared what I could. And he was disappointed like every single time that we talked because apparently I didn't find enough bad stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in retrospect, that sticks out to me in a way that it didn't back then. Cause I kind of chastised myself like, Oh man, you've got to be more discerning. You've got to be able to look deep into the hearts of these people and be able to expose what's going on. And I saw it as a failure in myself, as opposed to saying, wow, this is really crossing some serious boundaries. And this is, has gone from uh, a caring and nurturing environment to, uh, to like Ty described it as intelligence gathering. And when they would gather intelligence, that intelligence was used Mm -hmm. and it was used against people for sure. Yeah, what do you mean? Sort of a... Um it it was so anytime and this 
I don't know if I'm assuming this is the way it is in other churches, but Ty called it intelligence gathering. Mm -hmm. And with this intelligence gathering, there is an approved information pipeline and it goes through the pipeline and it goes through different filters and those leaders then make judgments. Mm -hmm. So if I was the originator of the report, the associate would receive it. And then I don't know where it would go from there, but it would eventually make its way through leadership. And there's no telling what that report eventually turned into. It was, but then there would be perceptions generated about individuals and those perceptions would then be communicated back down through a pipeline and it would be uh, distilled amongst other group uh, small groups or informally throughout the church in other ways so that um, so that people would so members would perceive that individual or that family in the approved way so if they are to be perceived as being uh, worthy of emulation, well, that's how they were portrayed. And you were to think very highly of them. If, on the other hand, they were uh, less compliant or they were not, didn't measure up to whatever the standards were for that moment, uh, they were to be perceived in a very negative way and treated um, in such a way. So just to put kind of some feet to that, if um, if a woman were to share in Bible study or small group that she thought she might be struggling with postpartum depression, uh, one of the things that that I witnessed was that then that information would be taken from the small group or from the Bible study and told to one of the pastors. And then within two weeks, almost, it seemed like all of the elders' wives would be coming up to her and giving her suggestions. Um, you know, have you tried putting on some happy music? Do you think maybe you're unhappy because you don't like your life because you're not submitting to your husband the way you should be? And so then they would be bombarded with all of these suggestions. And when they would talk about it amongst themselves, you know, they would add judgments to that. Like I remember hearing one of the pastors say, um, well, you know, it's hard to tell if this woman really has postpartum depression or if she just doesn't like her life. You know, so it's, he would be gossiping, but then opening the door to a very negative impression of that person. Um, and it, it could be really devastating because if you're struggling with something like that, to tell somebody in a situation of intimacy and privacy, and then to have it get all over the church almost instantly, you feel very exposed and uncomfortable. And I think the sort of downstream from that, if you know that this is going on and you've witnessed it, you're much less likely to feel comfortable opening up and sharing with somebody else even if there is a, a real and difficult problem that you need someone's help with, you're not going to feel comfortable telling anybody because you know, it's going to get all over the church and be used against you and be used against you. Yeah. I, I remember the last year or so uh, of being there and I was a deacon there, by the way, um, someone came up to me and 
confided that they were really struggling with something that the, the leadership had said or done in response to um, a loved one. And um, he was talking very, very freely about it. And, and I said this out of concern for him. I said, yeah, this is a problem. And you've got to be careful who you talk to about this. Because I knew this is the sort of thing that is going to get them in trouble. Um, the information gets relayed back up. And if, if at any point you question the um, decision-making capabilities of a leader, they're going to come down really hard. So it was difficult to have genuine relationships of, of trust because the leadership formed you in such a way that you were, you were to have no boundaries. And so if they were to ask you a question, um, even about someone that you cared about and was your close friend, your commitment to the leader uh, has to be greater than your commitment to anybody else. So there, there was absolutely no sense of, of healthy boundaries. If you tried to erect some kind of a boundary to, for protection, that would definitely be seen uh, as a rebellious thing. You know, I have to say that this listening, it sounds less like a church and more like a cult as far as the level of, you know, you have to, listen to and obey and, you know, revere the leadership, you know, to that, to that extent, right. Where you have to be careful who you talk to and what you say to them, right. That's, that's not healthy. Uh, yes. And that was um, kind of the, there, there was, there were some leaders there who recognized the problem and we all knew each other and we all talked about it. Mm -hmm. um, and we all struggled under it and some of us suffered under it but each person refused to actually outright resist and to expose it because everybody to some level to, to a very deep level I should say it, they, they imbibe that this leadership was established by God and to resist this leadership is to resist God. One of the things we've talked about, I think we've talked about it quite a bit when um, we talked about it with Scott McKnight and about his book and maybe with Diane Langberg, I don't remember for sure, but in with spiritual abuse where scripture is kind of used to control and manipulate and, these sorts of things. Did you see that? And if so, what are some examples? I'm going to in part defer to my wife because I think we've had two different experiences yeah. um, because of the way they approached um, men's, men and women. Yeah. So. I think um, from the, the women's ministry perspective, the the verses that were really hammered home to us are probably the ones that you would expect. Any of the verses about uh, submission and marriage were things that 
that we heard about a lot and really any any verse in scripture about submission and authority almost everything seemed to come back to it so uh women's bible studies that they would do uh you know if there were passages that you're studying and they had written the study then the questions would be sort of geared towards leading you to see how submission and authority are a dynamic in this passage, even if the passage had nothing to do with submission or authority. That was always the goal was to hammer in the importance of hierarchical submission and authority and to reinforce your place in that hierarchy. And I've heard you guys talk in the past about how a lot of churches don't have deep Bible study ministries for women. And I know a lot of women were drawn to this church because they do have very active Bible studies and lots of women's teaching events and lots of what they would call mentoring or discipling ministries. And it seemed like a really great thing. And I'm, Obviously, I'm sure there are things that are taught that are good, but what a lot of it would break down to would be hammering home those ideas of submission and authority and making sure that all of the women are submitting to their husbands and committing to this ideal vision of uh, a woman who's the mother of a large family, who's at home, homeschooling her children and committing her time towards the ministry of the church. And not that those aren't necessarily good things, but the message was that that's what every woman everywhere is called to do. And if they're not, then we need to get them into shape. That's how it felt from the woman's perspective is that was the message that was always being hammered home. And there was no other point to scripture. <laughs> like that's, that's really our, what should be my takeaway when I come to scripture is, is that it's reinforcing that message of submission and authority, which is a very narrow view of scripture. Yeah. the Their use of scripture um, the word that comes to mind is exemplification. So each time scripture was engaged with in like a public teaching format, sermons and things like that, it was used to exemplify themselves in some way. A pastor might use it to project his image onto it um, or he'll be can be very explicit and actually name names of people from the congregation in order to say these these individuals here or this family here is what you need to aspire to and i'm not exaggerating am i ty was that oh no i mean he would outright praise certain people for doing this or that 
I, I, I even remember it's a stupid example, but he had spent part of a sermon praising uh, going up to the boundary waters, which is, I guess, a vacation spot and telling people that, you know, you guys, sh- you, everybody should go, everybody should go here. And then when you know people would do what he said, whether it was naming their child a certain name or going a certain place or getting rid of a certain toy, he would praise them from the pulpit for their obedience to him. You know, oh, so-and-so really listens. They listen to what I say. And you should be like this person. So people would kind of, you know, metaphorically live or die, die by that. Um, I, I mean, a lot of people are familiar with Wade Mullen's work. Uh, some people would experience the cubicles of charm. And then at other times, the crucible of, uh, I forget how he put it, but you don't want to be in the crucible. You want to be, you want to be in the cubicle of charm. And scripture was always subservient to whatever the leadership needed. So when I hear about um, other sorts of abusive churches who had a lot of go-to passages and go into deep exegesis, that wasn't really the case that we experienced for the most part. I think there were allusions to scriptural images and certain emphases that they would come back to. So some of the ones that they would come back to a little bit more explicitly was Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief for this would be unprofitable for you with a very strong emphasis on let them do it with joy and not with grief. Um, the way they would use scripture was to maximize their authority and maximize the extent to which they could exercise it. And that allowed them to be masters over the meaning of, of scripture. It was to the point where I could pretty much nearly weekend, week in and week out, tell you what the points of the sermon were going to be before we listened to the sermon and before we knew what passage of scripture we were reading for the day. Because it, it was just that subservient to the whim of leadership. Um, another passage they liked alluding to, it's found in more than one gospel, but uh, in Matthew chapter seven, it says, when Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching for he was teaching, teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. And this was just another, they use this as kind of a way to maximize their demonstration of authority. And this is what distinguishes them from other churches or from other leaders Mm -hmm. where other leaders, they will be highly educated. They'll um, speak in highly scholastic and academic ways. And then they would say this with disdain. They would speak with nuance. Well, we don't speak with nuance here. We speak with authority because that's how Jesus, Jesus did things. And the way we do things is how Jesus did things. And very, very quickly, it went from showing 
how Jesus is superior to everyone else to showing how, well, they're superior to everyone else, if, if that makes sense. No, it does. And they, they also liked emphasizing Romans 13, 1 through 3. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. Mm -hmm. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. And those words are still kind of hard for me to read. Because there, there is baggage that goes with that. Um, so trying to understand this with new eyes or new ears, it can be difficult because I still sense in that that you are called to please your leader. And if you're not, you're resisting God. And how do you know if you're pleasing your leader? Well, they'll give you immediate feedback on whether or not you're pleasing them or not. And so their emphasis on this really put people um, in a difficult position. How do you resist um, an ungodly leader? Because they certainly did not emphasize other portions of scripture uh, that talk about accountability and how leaders, they would talk about how leaders would have to give an account, but they didn't lead in such a way that they had to give an account. It's, it was always the sheep who would have to give an account. And the emphasis was always on a different syllable. The emphasis wasn't on um, their accountability. Their emphasis was on your submission. And if you weren't pleased with how they were leading it would always come back to your failure to submit. Would it be fair to say that even with that passage, right? When you talk about the Romans 13 and, and being uh, in submission to authority, would it be fair to say that they, they define who that authority is because would they hold the same or preach the same about obeying say the federal government, right? If, or uh, secular leaders, or even other church leaders that they disagreed with. Um, Do you know what I mean? Like it, I know what you mean, and my answer is probably going to surprise you a little bit. Okay, that's fine. And Ty, if you disagree, disagree. <laughs> they would emphasize that you should submit, and there's a reason for that. It's internal consistency. Mm-hmm. Because if they didn't affirm that, then they would somehow lose control. Um, so submitting to, to governing authorities always came back to submitting to them, if that, if that makes sense. Oh, it does. So they would talk about it, but really it was more performance and act as opposed to actual um, true like submission, Mm -hmm. because I know for the time that we, that that church was in the PCA, uh, 
the leadership talked to, I mean, ordinary members, they talked to uh, other leaders about how they really only had one foot in the denomination because they saw the denomination as being um, in rebellion to God uh, because they saw um, ministries of certain prominent leaders, which uh, men who elevated women, they saw that as being in rebellion. And so they were constantly prepared to leave the denomination and they would speak very negatively of their own presbytery as well. Um, they, they refused, they would pay lip service to some authorities, but where it came to accountability, that's where they would make very clear lines on, okay, you need to listen to us because there's a transcending authority, the authority of God. Mm-hmm. So they were okay with submission to other authorities so long as it did not encroach upon them. So right. I guess that's probably, if I could summarize it, that's probably a much better summary than yeah. the blathering I've done. That <laughs> they would they would affirm and teach submission to other authorities until uh, that would make them accountable. One example that I would I would give within that. Um, Towards the end of our time there, I raised some concerns about um, the pastors making assessments of people that were not true because they weren't actually speaking to the people or listening to them well, and then you know spreading those assessments around. And I was hesitant at the time to use the phrase gossip, but that's really what it was. And I talked to two separate elders' wives with this concern. I said, you know, I'm seeing that that the pastors are hearing and spreading untrue things about people. And, and it's leading to hurt and conflict. And both of the women acknowledged to a certain extent that this might be the case. And they said, well, it's because the pastors are so overworked and they're so understaffed. And I think at the time we had just had two pastors move to other other states to serve. And even though there was a pastor's training program, as soon as the pastors would get through, they would move someplace else. And I I said in both situations, why why don't they open a call? You know, we've got the PCA. Why don't they open a call for additional pastors? to have them come here. And I was told by both of these women, well, we couldn't possibly do that uh, because if we're, if they're not coming from our own church and from our own training programs, well, we don't know what kind of pastor we would get and look at the direction that the PCA is going. And it didn't occur to me at the time that calling a pastor is a very long process and that they would have had plenty of time to examine that pastor and see, you know, what they believed. But it was clear that that no one from the outside could be allowed to come in. And that was really shocking to me when I realized that that's essentially what they were saying, is that no one who hadn't been trained in these procedures and ways, ways of relating and ways of viewing scripture could be allowed to hold any sort of position of authority there. So what are some ways that this abuse, abusive situation affected 
know, you personally, your relationships, your parenting, beliefs about yourself and others. How did it affect you? I would say as a, as a wife, I was very fearful all the time of not submitting correctly to Craig. Um, And I just, I found myself second guessing everything and worrying a lot that if I didn't get exact directions from him about how to do the things I needed to do, whether it was homeschooling or organizing the house, that if he didn't tell me exactly what he wanted, and then I do those things that I was failing to submit. And I, it made me really anxious a lot of the time. And he would want to hand those things over to me because, you know, the education of our children and the organization of the home, he trusted my ability to do those things well, but I kept uh, coming to him and saying, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? I think I was really annoying about, about all of that. Um, and then I would say we didn't experience it as much, but I know a lot of women, a lot of husbands and wives are taught there that the wife, the relationship between husband and wife shouldn't should necessarily ad- be, it should be adversarial. adversarial. It, yeah. They, they, there should be an adversarial relationship. Yeah. Which you know, plays out with everything that this pastor has written and said publicly. And so one of the things the women were taught is submission is only submission when it's hard. And that is a catchphrase there. So then, you know, on the one hand, if a woman is coming and she's experiencing uh, controlling tactics or domination from her husband or outright abuse, which, you know, those things are abusive, but stronger abuse, then they would say to her, well, it's hard. Well, you have to submit to it because that's how submission works. You submit when it's hard. And then likewise, the husbands would be told, well, how can you know if your wife is actually submissive to you? If she's happy and your relationship is good, you need to fight with one another. You have to make it hard for her to submit. Pick something you know she won't want to submit to make it a command, and then force her to submit. And so then it's setting up this adversarial antagonistic relationship between husbands and wives, destroying the peace of the home and really making life miserable for otherwise happy couples. Yeah, I I wasn't a very good husband because I didn't (laughs) make her submit hard. And I'm realizing (laughs) what a failure I am. Uh, and I think this is another instance where our experience, even though we were in the same church was, was different. Um, I had internalized the teaching differently than she had, but I also wasn't the women's ministries were so such a heavy focus that she was being taught these things so regularly. And my my involvement was not nearly so much. So they didn't have, I I guess I just wasn't subjected to as much of it as she was. So I would defer to her and 
you know, well, what if we were talking about homeschool things? Well, let's talk about our goals. How do these reach our goals? Um, is this something that you can do? It is. And it seems like it jives with our goals. Great. All right. I trust you. Um, and deferring to her. And I remember her being very frustrated by that. Uh, I, I bet to a certain extent, you probably didn't think I was measuring up as a husband. I don't, I don't know. It's okay to admit it. It was, it was, it was a really weird time. And I, I think too, um, it really disrupted our home that there were definite expectations about the amount of time and energy you were supposed to be investing there. And they, they would strongly attempt to capitalize all of your time and energy. So I'm not exaggerating when I say that uh, as the year that we were getting ready to leave, I was, um, on the women's ministry committee, I was organizing uh, meals for women who had had babies or there was you know, some sort of major illness in the home. We were hosting and leading a small group. I was hosting a table at the mom's group. Uh, we were homeschooling our kids through the homeschooling program at that church. What else did we have going on? Oh, we well, were in we Awana. Weren't, we weren't leading a home group because I had been uh, oh yeah you had been I, I was on the outs for the last yeah. two years but at the height of our commitment I would say that there wasn't I don't think we had a single day of the week <laughs> where we didn't have some sort of obligation that required us either to be at the church or to be opening our home to a church event yeah so it was difficult to have an ordinary Christian home where, where you enjoyed actual time worshiping as a family, doing family devotions. I, I think it became so program centric and because it was so focused upon the approval and direction of the leadership, you became dependent upon all of those things in order to grow spiritually so the children couldn't possibly be adequately instructed in the home. They had to be there for Awana. They had to be there for youth group. They had to be there for whatever. And then the women had to be at all these different events. And the men had to, you know, do whatever it is that they were, they were required to do to enable all of this activity. And there was no, there was no time for rest. There was no time for reflection. And, uh, and I think that in these sorts of situation, that situations, that's used to uh, members' detriment because you, can't, you can never get a, a clear picture or a, a clear idea of what the bigger picture is. You're just caught up in the moment, making it through today, and then there's the next day, and then there's the next day. Um, and it just kind of beats you down. I, I, yeah, I, that's... yeah it, it really monopolized all of our lives and it defined the way we lived. And, and I think looking at it from outside, I can pretty 
strongly assert that it was by design Mm -hmm. because they would set goals like 100% participation in small group or 100% participation in a women's conference. And so anytime that you would try to defer doing something or say, you know, I just don't think we have time for that in our schedule, someone would come to you and say, you know, it's, you have to be there. You have to be there. And, and anytime you would give an excuse, well, you know, that's not really an excuse. You have to come. If you just had a baby, well, someone will hold your baby. You need to be there. It didn't, it didn't matter what else you had going on. Oh man. If you, if you were at church, let's say you had a baby on Tuesday and then you made it to worship on Sunday. Oh, that was a big deal. Yeah. Well, I think I remember somebody had a baby and they were released from the hospital Sunday morning and they came to church before they went to their home. <laughs> yeah. And they were praised from the pulpit for that, which now I look at that and I'm like, what on earth? Yeah. That's insane. That's crazy. Um, but so- it was, it was very much by design so that, you know, everyone that I've talked to about, well, do you think you would ever leave? And, and us as well at the time, the idea is where else could we go? Like, where else could we go to get all of these, you know, prepackaged paths to holiness? You know, who, who else, what other church does all of this stuff? Who else could tell us the things we need to know? And so there very much is this idea that there's nowhere else you can go. So even if there are problems, you just have to stick it out. Because, you know, now you've come to depend on all of these relationships, all of these events, all of these programs. And there's no possible way that you could have a relationship with God apart from it being mediated to you through these other things. Yeah, I remember my final meeting with uh, the pastor there. And this is just a build off of what we've already talked about. Um, The dependence upon your success as a Christian, as a husband, as a father, depended so much on the church that it was inconceivable that you could maintain or have any semblance of a healthy marriage after leaving there. Um, The pastor said, as I was confirming, yes, we are rescinding our membership and we're, we're leaving. He made it a point of saying, I'm worried for your marriage, like immediately calling into question whether or not our marriage would survive this. So I guess that's a fear-based tactic. There's a lot of fear-based tactics. And having left there, um, we took a lot of those errors with us. We didn't, uh, we didn't figure it all out while we were there. Um, a lot of it, we started figuring our way around it after we left. Probably 12 months after we left is when we were really kind of digging in and getting a better understanding of, of things. And um, I think you guys asked about identity. And I think in the years since, that's been um, something we had to rediscover. I, I know each of us has... Um, grown to figure out who we are uh, specifically in relation to Christ. And so there's been some rediscovery of 
who we are as individuals, who we are as a couple from, you know, kind of recapturing some of who we were 15 years ago uh, to discovering, okay, this is who we are now. And this is what our marriage is like. And this Mm -hmm. is what being a mom and dad is like in, in light of all of this. It's been, it's been very, it's been very difficult, but it's been um, really rewarding. So I I know you started to talk about this, but how did you kind of realize you were in an abusive situation? It sounds like some of that came even after you left. So I I had mentioned this uh, meeting I had with our then pastor who the point of the meeting was to uh, direct me, you know, away from uh, a, a particular decision career-wise. And in that conversation, he also made it a point of telling me that I forget how he said it, but it was something to the extent of that I'm an unlikable person. Mm-hmm. And then to it kind of put an accent on it said, and he's not the only elder that thinks that. So, um, I went into that meeting and there's a purpose I'm sharing that it's not just of like brochade going into that meeting. I had the expectation that, man, I'm going to uh, get a more prominent role in ministry. So I had, I had in my mind, this was going to be one kind of meeting and it was a totally different kind of meeting. And after he left, I, I was in the coffee shop just kind of shell-shocked and um, God really opened my eyes at that point and um, brought to mind, Hey, you're really disappointed. And I said, yeah, I'm very disappointed. And he made it clear that the reason I was disappointed was that I, I'm a man pleaser and I was expecting um, to be kind of puffed up and I wanted the admiration or the approval of that, of that pastor. And when he revealed that to me, he then also revealed, and I'm sorry if this, you know, makes you uncomfortable, uh, made it clear that it wasn't just me and that it was something going on throughout the church. And so and these were very foreign thought. These weren't things I was just trying to produce in myself. Um, and in that moment, I prayed and I committed to, to the Lord that I would seek to please him first and foremost. And within six months, that's when everything started um, coming down really, really hard. So I do think it was a, a, an intervention on God's part. And, and it's amazing how quickly things kind of came together, but some of the teachings and whatnot, that would take years to, to unlearn, but the tactics were things that he, he, I think very rapidly showed me were, were issues. Yeah. I I think Craig was probably afraid that I was never going to want to leave. Oh yeah. Because it's fair to say that 
every part of my identity was tied up in that church. Like I would not have been able to tell you who I was apart from the role that I had there. And um, I think shortly after Craig's experience, we had some friends who had really gone through the ringer in the leadership there. And she, the wife told me about all of these things that were going on and all of these concerns. And I was horrified, but I still very much was in the position of wanting, I wanted everybody to be right. You know, I wanted my friend to be right because I believed her, but I also believed the best of all of the leaders. And so I, I wanted this to just be some sort of big misunderstanding that, you know, we could patch over if we all just work together. And really over the course of the next six months, I, I tried to keep quiet and just watch what was going on around me. And I think, I think about that point, I asked Craig, you know, can we give it a year? Let's, let's really dig in. Let's commit to the church. Let's do everything we're asked to. Um, let's minister, let's serve, let's love. Uh, let's give it a year and see what happens. I don't think we even made it a year from that point, did we? I don't remember. It was I mean, within six months or so, the, the more we tried to do and give and love and serve and minister, it seemed like the more we realized how much was going on and the more open we were to listen to people and it sounds kind of cheesy, but to provide a safe place for them to say we have concerns and know that we weren't going to tell those to the leaders, people really began sharing like these are concerns we have. And I found myself in the position of someone who is in women's ministry, really starting to undermine a lot of the things that were being taught in the women's ministries. Like the submission is only submission when it's hard thing. I did not believe that. And so I would find myself actively undermining that as a teaching. And I, I realized at some point in that, that, that there was cognitive dissonance happening, that I was being taught one thing, but then realizing I couldn't support that as a teaching. And so things sort of, for me, came to a head when the pastor confronted me about my husband being a problem and wanting me to use my influence with Craig to get my husband in line as it were. And uh, he used a number of tactics in that he flattered me. He insulted Craig. He insulted my mom and uh, he used an act of charity that he had done for my father, uh, he turned that around and said, I did this for you. Now you need to do this for me. And I was really shaken up by that. And I think that was the moment when I realized that this whole system was built around a man who was seeking his own advantage rather than seeking to honor Christ. And I think from that point, it was really only a couple of weeks after that, that we left. And I think one of the other big breaks was we took a Sunday, 
it was our anniversary. We took a Sunday and we went up to Ann Arbor. And while we were up in that area, we visited another church. And it was staggering being there that Sunday and not being afraid. And while we were there, we were able to rest and worship without feeling like we were looking over our shoulders the whole time. And so realizing that just by visiting another church, just by being out of that atmosphere for one Sunday and then dreading going back, dreading being part of that culture again, realizing how much fear we had been living under, uh, fear of judgment, fear of constantly being afraid of saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing and coming under some sort of condemnation from the leadership. You know, having taken a step back, realizing that every time someone in the leadership would want to get together for coffee, you would immediately go into fear mode. Like, what have I done wrong? Why do they want to talk to me? What, you know, what issue are they going to be bringing up? I, I realized that I was just so afraid all of the time. And then realizing these aren't people who have my best interests at heart. And they're not, they don't believe the best about me. They're not looking to see something good in me. They're watching for me to screw up so that they can put me under fire. And that was really a frightening revelation. Yeah, I, I had been feeling that for a long time. Um, I think you described it perfectly, that sense of fear. Uh, and I would add dread. Yeah. Um, expecting expecting for some, something else to go wrong. Always waiting for something else to, to go wrong. And prior to that conversation I had with that pastor, I forget how long I was doing it, but I was, I found a conservative Episcopalian church and I would go to their 8 a.m. service by myself. I would get up early and I would go there to worship and receive the Eucharist. And then I'd come home, pick up my family and go to our old church. I thought you were crazy. <laughs> I thought you were really crazy. But I, I wanted to experience in some sense uh, Christ's love and acceptance and also to receive him in a way that he wasn't being given. And that short time was my preparation for then making it through another Sunday. I had to worship somewhere else. You've mentioned already a couple different ways and uh, talking about coming into a better church and some other things, but what steps have you taken to recover from the abuse to, to work through and to be in a healthier place now? I think part of it, and, you know, it was very difficult the first couple of years being out, um, because all of our, we lost almost every friendship um, that we had there. There's only a couple that remain 
one of those relationships predated um, us going to that church, though. Um, I think people, when you're in this situation or when you've left, don't be afraid of feeling those feelings. Um, I think there might be a tendency in our evangelical circles to think you're going to become bitter. And so we'll suppress these, these feelings and pretend that we're getting better. So I guess one piece of advice is to acknowledge when you go through this, you're going through grief and it's not unlike going through a very grievous form of death. And so when you're feeling those feelings, it's because something truly terrible has happened and it's okay to acknowledge that. I think that that's important. I think it's also important. And this sounds kind of weird, but to be willing to put some of those scriptures that have been used against you on the back burner, mm-hmm. which is a weird way of putting it. But I've, I've found that with a lot of them, I have to say to myself, I know that God is saying something good and true and valuable here, even though that's not what I've been taught in the past. And it's okay if I don't understand it right now. I trust that God will help me understand it in the future. And so, you know, some of the verses that Craig shared, when I'm reading scripture and I come across them, I kind of seize up a little bit. Because they, the way that I heard them used really influenced how I view God. And so to say, you know, to, to say, okay, I'm uncomfortable with this. This makes me uncomfortable. God, help me not to be uncomfortable. Help me to trust that you want to teach me something good in the scripture and help me, help me to be willing to listen when you teach it to me. Having that kind of openness, I think it's easy to just want to rip those pieces out of our Bible because there's hurt associated with them or maybe find the most liberal way to approach them. And that's not really honoring scripture. And so then trying to find what do those passages actually mean? What is God really telling us about himself? And I I think I went through at least a full two years where I would ask somebody, you know, is this what scripture says here? No, that's not. That's not really what scripture is saying. Oh, really? You mean not everybody views it that way? And it was very shocking to me to realize how many things I had been taught were Bible truth aren't actually Bible truth. And so recognizing that that's going to be a long process and then having faith that God will see you through it. Yeah. I think um, talking to somebody outside of your context, outside of your church context uh, can be very helpful. I mean, use wisdom and discretion because not everybody has wisdom. Uh, for us, that meant talking to some people outside of our tradition. And that helped us to, to see things more clearly. 
And I know um, we do have some friendships with people that are, Ty has uh, at least a couple of close relationships from her childhood. And those people have known you from before you were in that church to the point you were in there to the point you were, you left and they can, to an extent, help you see maybe where you've changed and see how that church had an unhealthy influence upon you mm-hmm. and changed your personality in ways that were, were not good. Um, for, for me, this, while we were still there, I felt very disoriented um, in the fog of abuse. It's a very disorienting thing to go through. And you tend to question, at least I did, I tended to question my own sanity. Like, how could this possibly, this can't possibly be true. All of these things, this cannot be true. And the way I found some kind of reorientation was through using uh, an Eastern Orthodox prayer book. And so I found ways of practicing Christian faith that was distinct and not fed from the church that, that we were going to. And since leaving, it's been incredibly helpful using the Book of Common Prayer. We started using that as a family before we even joined an Anglican church. And that provided ways of uh, praying and interacting with Scripture in a vastly different way which is, was important for us because as we're reading scripture, you know, there were times where the voice of our former pastor would be just in the background. Uh, I could at times hear his voice while I was reading scripture. And that's a, that's a very difficult thing to cope with. So finding a different way within a Christian tradition to interact with, with prayer and scripture is I found to be very helpful. And I would also say an actual therapist is probably a good idea too. Is there any red flags that you would tell other people to look for? You know, I think one of the things actually I was thinking also is one of the things you said earlier was um, that attracted you to that church was the the community and obviously these churches that have these practices have attractive things it's why people join them and i think especially today i was listening to a conversation on a secular podcast and they were talking about how a, a lot of us have kind of a need for community and even in some ch- and they were talking about how s- historically in the church that's where you'd find it but even in some churches it's it can be hard to cultivate that we we attended a church I'll say it like this where there was a lot of good things and i saw some red flags right away but i kind of overlooked those because of the good but what are some red flags uh i would say for me the big ones uh, people talk about love bombing in cults. When, when emissaries of the church over-involve themselves in your life immediately, like when they want to over-help, over-share, create 
over intimacy um, when they want you to show up at Bible study and two weeks later start confessing all of your deepest sins. When they're trying to forge those really close bonds, but not over time, but instantly. And, and so then there, it, it creates this sense of obligation and false community. And it took me a while to realize that while I was often being encouraged to overshare, to overcommit, overinvolve, there was no reciprocity. You know, there wasn't, uh, there was no sense that the leaders themselves were willing to be vulnerable with us. There was definitely a wall between the leadership and everybody else. Um, Anytime that you see flattery being involved, um, you're just so great. You're so discerning. You're so wise. What are some of the other things? Those are, are great. They cultivate false intimacy. You're not allowed to have um, any kind of boundaries. Uh, another way they'll foster false intimacy is when you sit down with a leader, they'll start sh- sharing with you uh, deeply private information about other people. Mm-hmm. And so it's, you know, in retrospect, that should have been a very clear red flag. But when you're in the midst of it, you think, whoa, I'm being trusted with this information. Wow, I must be very discerning, or I'm a special person that they're sharing this information with me. But they're also doing the same thing with you. You know, what you're sharing is going to be shared with somebody else. Mm-hmm. So um, it's, it's a false form of vulnerability what they're just doing is sharing other people's information. I would say um, like churches that push you to become heavily involved right away. They want you to join their school co-op. They want you to join all of these ministries. It's a good thing to have ministries and have those available to people, but there's a difference between saying, Hey, these are available and we'd love for you to join them versus you need to come to this. You need to be at this. Other red flags, this came up earlier when Ty was talking about how that church wouldn't open up a pastoral call to, um, to, to men from within our own former denomination. And that's because they, if there's a fostering of distrust from anyone outside of your church mm-hmm. or your small network of trust, that's a big red flag yeah if they're constantly pointing out the ways that they're superior to all of those other churches you know we do things this way and this is the biblical way and nobody else is doing it the right way you know whether it's about the way that the worship music is being done or how they disciple people or what their leadership training program looks like For me, it's an automatic red flag when they start talking about all of those other churches that don't take scripture seriously. We take scripture seriously. And so this is why we do X, Y, and Z. And obviously, it's a good thing to take scripture seriously and to want to be in alignment with that. 
But to say that there's no other way besides the way you do things, to me, that's a big red flag because it does set up that mentality that if you go to another church, you're going to be out of line with God's will and that there's no other church that you can go to and still worship God in the right way. Something related to that is when they're doing teaching or preaching and you find that they're constantly finding the most provocative way to, uh, to explain the passage, I would say that would probably be a good red flag as well, that they're constantly seeking ways of being provocative. Mm-hmm. And there can be any number of reasons for that, but I would see that as a red flag. Um, another one in retrospect, this, I guess, is for people who have been within uh, an abusive church for a while is take stock of the individuals or families who have left your church and, and look back on them. There are some families that I would say are kind of a, a barometer for the health of a congregation. And I'm thinking of particular families that exhibited deep love and, and self-sacrifice in, in ways that were, were truly amazing if they're unable to survive in that climate, that should kind of give you a good indicator. They're like, you know, if someone is evaluating the health of a a particular climate, you know, they look for the existence of frogs Mm -hmm. or lichen or lichen, you know, you look for the, these are the markers. If, if you have a healthy habitat, well, look at who's left and that will tell you something about your habitat. And watch for what people say about people who have left. Um, one of the things that we heard was nobody leaves this church except that they're in sin and rebellion. And so if there's if there's no charity shown to the people who are left who have left, if there's always a narrative that paints the leavers in some sort of uh, just awful light that they were in some dreadful sin and rebellion and it's never the case that they left because God was calling them someplace else. That's usually a sign in my mind, at least that there's an unhealthiness on the part of the leadership and being willing to be accountable for how they treat others. (laughs) Well, I guess I guess one thing is if you uh, experience criticism from from leadership there, and they refuse to um, tell you the source of that criticism, or someone provides a, a bad report about you, mm-hmm. and you're never given specifics, or they won't allow you to know who your accuser is. That that's a, that's a big red flag. And I'm talking about just ordinary, uh, ordinary stuff. Obviously, if um, someone confides that they were abused, you don't reveal to the abuser any, any uh, information, but for ordinary things, uh, this is a good indicator because it shows you 
it can show you that the leadership is simply using this as a means for controlling you. They might not actually have a specific accuser, but instead they're using their own their own words to manipulate you and get the behavior uh, that they want from you by telling you, hey, this is what we're hearing. Well, who are you hearing it from? We're hearing it from multiple people. Okay, who are we hearing it from? Well, these are patterns that we are observing in your life, and we're here to tell you how to fix that. We've had reports. We've had reports. So I think that is kind of a good indicator as well. It's a very interesting tactic to have used against you. Yeah, it's frustrating because you have, (laughs) there's no way to deal with it. It's like, it's just them saying, well, this is what people say. And no way to know who to trust and who who might be upset with you. Yeah, it undermines, you're trying to triangulate. What Mm -hmm. did I say to which person that it was taken this way? Right. And then you don't know who to trust and you can't talk to anybody. It's very disorienting. Yeah. And um, another experience is if, you know, everybody, you know, you're going to have relationships where they're, it's fraught with difficulty at times. But when you are dealing with healthy individuals, you can work through those, work through those problems if it's a communication issue, uh, you can kind of correct things or be corrected. But in an unhealthy or an abusive church environment, if there's a misperception and you recognize, oh, this is a misperception here. Let me tell you what I was really thinking or this was what I was, uh, at, this is actually what I meant. There's no level of explanation that you can provide. Uh, to satisfy because at that point it's not about understanding you and it's not about coming to a proper understanding of relationship because it at that point is about um, authority and submission and so your your role right now isn't to to provide a deeper explanation for deeper understanding it's your job to just submit mm-hmm. and so I that that's a big indicator when things, are always about authority and submission. That is a major problem. Somebody should write a book about that. Somebody, yeah. Uh, Yeah, someone should do that. I agree. Great (laughs) idea. There's some really wacky teachings about that in the church. Someone should address that. (laughs) So funny. You'd think you would have heard something about that by now. One last question that I wanted to ask is, what encouragement would you give to others uh, who may be listening who are in abusive church situations? Not all churches are like that. Yeah. yeah. Thank the Lord. There are a lot. Yeah. There are a lot of really lovely, godly people in many different traditions. Yeah. That, that has been really encouraging me encouraging for me to learn is that there are a lot of wonderful, loving, gracious, compassionate, intelligent Christians who would love to be your friend and walk alongside you. 
Yeah, I guess um, from my perspective, one, maybe one piece of encouragement is that if you're about to leave or if you have left, I know I went through this period of time where I would replay in my mind, if only I had said this, yeah. or if only I had talked to this person or, or something like that. If you're in a genuinely abusive situation, which is very likely if you're wondering, like if, if this is something you're thinking, you're probably in, a, in an abusive church. Um, there's nothing you could have said or done differently that would have changed the outcome. You may have prolonged your time there, or you might prolong your time there, but things are going to fall the way they're going to fall. So there's no sense in beating yourself up. Um, I'm sure many people would like to remind you of things that you did wrong in your departure, but you are a limited, finite human being dealing with something uh, healthy people are not accustomed to dealing with. And so there's no right way to deal with it exactly. And you won't know how to deal with it in a particularly healthy way until after it's over. And then you'll know how to look for it in the future. But you're not responsible for how the people treated you. They need to take responsibility for that. That's not for you. We appreciate so much that you you guys were willing to talk about it because I know it can't be easy to talk about it, especially when you're not accustomed to being on a podcast. But I think hearing your story will be helpful for a lot of people that are wondering, is is this normal in this situation that that I've been in? And Rachel and I talked to you guys prior to recording about how we see so many parallels with um, different abuse situations. And one of the things um, that you, that you talked about uh, that I've heard in regards to other churches is kind of this idea that there's no good reason to leave the church sort of idea. So, and, and that makes that sometimes makes people feel like they can't they can't leave. Um, I've heard of churches that your choice to leave is either death or church discipline. Mm-hmm. Kind of like yeah. marriage permanence. Yes, like marriage permanence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, I've been a Christian my whole life, and I've heard about church hoppers. I've got to tell you, I haven't met very many church hoppers, but that's how. Some of these churches will try to portray people when they leave. Well, they're just church hopping. And I think sometimes people are afraid to leave because they don't want to be perceived that way. And I think that's unfortunate. Yeah, it's it's sad because I, I think a lot of people are stuck in various situations. And, you know, I I know that people hear these stories and I'm so glad that you said that there are good churches out there because there really are. And we hear these stories that can be um, discouraging, but you are in a good church now, and um, there really are good churches out there. So, well, we thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you next week. <laughs>